Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. great to be back guys sorry for being away for a little while had some stuff going on at home with my dad kept me from recording for a while but we're back and we're gonna do the representation episode we've got andrew asipov back on to complete his trilogy of appearances on or loosely related to the theme of representation andrew and edmund by the way have both qualified for mphil at cambridge which is awesome and very impressive for both of them, and I congratulate both of them on doing that. Andrew wrote a dissertation on representation, so he spent a lot of time with the contemporary representation literature, along with studying the History of Political Thought course, which covered Montesquieu and the French Revolution, which we did the previous two episodes. So all of this for Andrew culminated in writing this dissertation right, about representation. So I, I'm going to talk to Andrew about what it was in the contemporary literature that he found most interesting or most useful for that dissertation. And then we're going to talk about some of the different categories Andrew used in that dissertation to organize different definitions and conceptions of representation. We're going to talk about where those different conceptions go, what the trends are in conceptions of representation, and the kinds of effects that those trends may have on legitimacy, right? So, Andrew, tell us a little bit about which text stood out to you when you were looking at the contemporary representation literature. Who are the big names for you? And what did you find most, most fascinating about that literature? Yeah, so I think I have to start out with the concept of representation by Pitkin, um, which is the sort of first big um, contemporary text that I looked at relating to the topic. And it was one that David Runciman, um, Professor Runciman at Cambridge, recommended me to look at first when he um, heard that I wanted to do this topic uh, with him. And the main thing that stood out to me about that book was because it really resonated with how I had started to think about representation during my time at Cambridge. Because, of course, you start out Cambridge, um, everybody starts at Cambridge by doing Hobbes if you're doing politics. Um, Edwin and I both did Hobbes as our first essay, and pretty much every other politics student has and probably will continue doing so for many, many years to come. And Hobbes, of course, presents a very sort of formalistic authorization method of representation, which we'll unpack in a bit and which you all have already have done in previous episodes. Um, but throughout the course of, of the, whole, the whole degree, I would say, I went through several different theorists um, from the American Revolution to the French Revolution to the ancient Greeks, um, to the Romans, um, and of course to more modern theorists who all had their own notions of representation, but each of them treated representation as if it was, like their definition of representation was the correct one. There was only one you know, truth about representation that they themselves could present. And Pitkin was not like this. Pitkin presents representation as an object being photographed in the dark from different angles in the first chapter of the book. And that really, that definition, an object being photographed in the dark from different angles, you can't quite see what the whole concept means. But if you look at it from different ways, you can see how it can potentially be viewed by different people as what they believe is true. 
but might not necessarily be overall true. And that was really interesting. And so I started out by adapting Pitkin's different views um, into categories. And Pitkin already partially does this. Um, they're not distinctly named, but one can summarize them as the formalistic authorization view, the accountability view, the descriptive view, the standing for view, and the top-down symbolic view. Uh, that's a lot of strange words all put together, so it's better if we unpack that slowly. So an easier way of thinking about this, um, and when I usually try to talk about my dissertation with people, is I equate the Habesian view with the authorization view, um, a sort of Rousseauian view with the accountability view, um, an early American Revolution um, descriptive view, which can then also be evolved um, into other theorists, a standing for view to do with the physician-like expert-based um, leadership of which probably Plato is most can be most resonated with, and then the top-down symbolic view, which I personally uh, like to equate with Robespierre and his leadership during the French Revolution. Um, in a purely theoretical sense, not good or bad. But that would be the, a quick way to, to summarize it. Um, to be able to navigate these categories better, um, what I did in the dissertation is I built three scales. Um, and these three scales are autonomy at one end and fealty at the other end. So whether a representative or a political leader um, or a political authority figure is autonomous in the sense that they can do lots of things, they are not restricted by the group of people that they are leading or representing um, versus being um, very submissive to them, being very accountable to them, or in the medieval slang of fealty, essentially, being um, very responsive to that. Then the second category is a scale of reflectiveness, so low reflectiveness to high reflectiveness. Um, and this essentially plays on the aspect of whether a representative reflects their people's ideas, but it can also be their behaviors. It can also be their aesthetics. So how they look like, what their life experiences are like, how they act, how they think, how the people themselves perceive the representative to be reflecting them. And the final category of the three is expertise. And that once again goes from low expertise to high expertise. So whether um, a representative is perceived as having the same level of knowledge um, in terms of political understanding and the problems a group faces and how to solve them, how to approach them, how to act on them, or whether a representative is considered to be more of an expert um, than the group that they are leading, representing, being an authority of. Um, and that, once again, is not necessarily a scale of this is true, but more of a this is what it seems. So in the sense of a group might perceive a representative to be more of an expert by them. Um, or the same level of expertise. And so when you take these three scales, um, what you can do is you can build a little model of representation. Um, and the best way to describe this without having an image of it, because I, I do have a lovely little graphic that I, I invented for this, is an upright triangular prism. And basically, just imagine a Toblerone bar standing upright. <laughs> and you have each side, each of the, each of the sides, um, not the signs, but the, yeah, each of the support bases essentially is the scale of autonomy, fealty, reflectiveness, and expertise. And those different scales, depending on how you rank um, the points on each one, can form five different views, as I mentioned before. Um, so the Rousseauian view, the Habesian view, the Platonic view, um, the descriptive view, because I haven't quite 
yet determinative theorist that can be fully slotted into that. And finally, the top-down symbolic view. So that is a, a very brief introduction. Where would you like me to go next with that? Well, so there's a lot going on in Andrew's theory, uh, a lot. So I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the more basic descriptions that, that uh, some people may have heard of and talk about kind of how those relate to your categories to help people move maybe from some stuff they may have heard to some of, some of those. So you know, one very common view that you'll often hear in undergraduate courses is a kind of delegate versus trustee view, right? Yeah. Where the delegate is someone who does more or less what they are told. And the trustee is someone who is expected to think for themselves, right? So when we talk about your autonomy fealty scale, it sounds a lot like uh, delegate trustee, where the delegate is fealty and the trustee is autonomy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But oftentimes, because when people talk about delegate versus trustee, they don't have all of these other categories explicitly mentioned, a lot of this other stuff gets kind of baked in or assumed to go along with. Mm -hmm. So when you look at Andrew's chart in his thesis, you can see how these things potentially can fit together, right? So fealty often comes along with having someone who has similar expertise to the group that they're representing, right? Uh, because if you have someone with more expertise, it's more likely that you would want them to exercise some level of autonomy, right? Mm -hmm. So fealty tends to come alongside uh, similar expertise. And I also think fealty would tend to come alongside uh, high reflectiveness, right? If you have a fealty relationship, then you are more likely to have a representative that's very similar to the set of people being represented, right? That seems to go together intuitively in delegate versus trustee, but it's not the case that those things always do go together, right? So you can think about a situation where, say, a lawyer, an attorney who's representing a client, is generally thought to have superior expertise to the client, uh, but isn't necessarily expected to reflect the client aesthetically. Mm -hmm. Indeed, oftentimes it's an advantage if the attorney is aesthetically very different from the client, much more uh, formal, much more prepared, much more uh, serious in presentation, right? Yeah. Uh, but you would want the attorney to have to have fealty in the sense that you don't want an attorney who will argue a case that isn't the case that the client wants argued, right? Yeah. And if the client mm -hmm. objects to the case, then the, the client can get rid of the attorney very easily, right? So that's a case where Andrew's categories open up some specificity that gets lost in the standard delegate trustee discussion, mm -hmm. right? Where those further distinctions tend to be collapsed together and just assumed to come together. What Andrew does and what Pitkin does is break these associations apart so that you can really dig into the gears and the meat of how representation works, right? Uh, another uh, view that I, I've often liked to use in class is a kind of thick versus thin notion of representation, right? Now, this is, is something which kind of favors the reflectiveness angle that Andrew talks about, where thick representation involves a lot of the cultural characteristics of the population being represented being reflected back at them by the representor, right? So with thick representation, a lot of the identity, a lot of the things that the population cares about or identifies with will be reflected back at them by the representor as a kind of reassurance, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in that thick representation, it may still be the case that the representor 
has a lot of autonomy and is much more of an expert, right? Those things might still happen, but the way that the population is reassured that this autonomous expert has their interests in mind is by reflecting this aesthetic cultural content back at them, right? I think a lot of representative democracies in the richer countries have this kind of representation where they have someone who is supposed to be an expert, who is supposed to have a high degree of autonomy in making judgments, but who nonetheless reassures voters by reflecting a lot of their cultural content back at them, right? You can compare this to a, a thinner notion of representation where less of that cultural content has to be reflected back, right? And so an argument I often make is that in general, concepts of representation are getting thicker, that we're wanting more and more of our cultural content reflected back at us by representatives, right? Now, one of the things I think Andrew's view does very helpfully is it highlights that that high reflectiveness that thick representation does not necessarily come alongside fealty or similar expertise. It can, but it can also come alongside superior expertise and a lot of autonomy. You can have autonomous technocrats who don't really have to answer very much to the ordinary voter at all, who nonetheless reflect a lot of cultural content back at voters as a way of clearing space, right? And so oftentimes you can get away with more autonomy, lower reflectiveness, or superior expertise by not putting all three of those things together and having at least one of those three things go the other way, right? And by going the other way on one of those things, you buy space for the other two, right? And that's one of the things that's really neat about this, how once you recognize that there are lots of different aspects to conceptions of representation, you can create a feeling of thick representation without actually having to have fealty of the representor to the represented. And you can have an expert-driven system and have it still feel like these are people who reflect me and therefore they're similar to me. So you can get a sense of similarity through high reflectiveness, even if the representative has a superior expertise or a lot of autonomy. And I think that's another really neat implication of this view, right? So those are a couple of the, the big categories that I think get thrown out a lot. I would also want to point out, and this is where Hobbes comes in, and also David Runciman's view of Hobbes, that a lot of older forms of representation, kind of like you know, uh, a lot of older forms of representation that we've talked about before on the show, don't involve any direct connection between the representor and the represented. Right? So when we think back to Hobbes's model, where you have this fractious multitude, the fractious multitude comes together to form the commonwealth, and then the commonwealth is personated by the sovereign in that Habesian triangle between the multitude, the commonwealth, and the sovereign, right? The sovereign does not represent the multitude and does not owe anything on Hobbes's theory to the particular people who make it up. Because the sovereign is there to personate the commonwealth, the sovereign is not bound by the particular wills or preferences of the people in the multitude. The people in the multitude authorize the sovereign by creating the commonwealth. They've authorized the sovereign to personate it, and therefore they're bound by whatever way the sovereign chooses to personate the commonwealth, right? Because the commonwealth is an abstraction, and therefore it can only represent them through this kind of mediated relationship in which the sovereign personates and speaks for that commonwealth, right? 
The idea here is that if the sovereign represents the people through the mediated abstraction of the commonwealth, then you can have this representative view in which the sovereign is acting on behalf of the people without having the sovereign be limited in what the sovereign can do by what particular people or majorities of people want, right? This is a kind of metaphysical representation. Now, notice that there's really no trace of this representation in Andrew's view. And the reason there's no trace of it is that in practice, this kind of metaphysical Habesian representation is impossible to legitimate to real people. Real people do not feel that this kind of representation is enough to count as representation, but it is the kind of representation which is most conceptually coherent, right? Once you start to ask for some of these other things like reflectiveness or fealty or uh, similar expertise, once you want a representative who is like you in certain respects, well, if you had a, a situation where the representative needed to be highly reflective and have a fealty relationship and could not have a different expertise, you would then very quickly get into the problem that we talked about last week, where you have a representative, representatives that are supposed to reflect the general will, are supposed to reflect it as perfectly as they can, right? And so you're always in position of being able to say that they don't reflect it enough, right? That they don't show enough fealty to the masses, that they don't have, that they're too different from the masses, that they have too different an expertise, right? So these other concepts of representation are an attempt to get away from that problem we talked about last time, where Siez is trying to say, well, you've got to have the general will represented in some way. And others are free to say in various ways that you, you haven't perfectly represented the general will because you haven't perfectly captured whatever it is about the general will that is significant for representing. And because there are all of these different axes that Andrew's laid out, there's always going to be some way in which you can accuse any representative of failing to represent the general will. So the concept of representation, once you take it away from the metaphysical, very quickly can be challenged, very quickly has weaknesses for, for the purposes of legitimating a state, right? And yet, we seem to be in a condition where it's very hard to get away from the concept of representation and to have a state that's based on something else. And one of David Runciman's more interesting arguments is this idea that while we talk a lot about liberty and equality, the concept that is really central to modern representative democracy is representation, that that's really the thing which distinguishes the modern state from other kinds of states is its dependence on some notion of representation. But then the fact that that notion of representation cannot be Habesian and actually persuade people forces it to take on all sorts of contradictory characteristics that tend to, when there's a crisis, when there's stress on the system, produce conflict about what really counts as a representative decision, what really counts as representative democracy, what's really democratic. And so you see this every time we get into a really deep crisis people start to have nasty, nasty arguments about what is democracy, what is democratic. And those arguments about what is democratic or what is democracy, where people go, this is what democracy looks like. No, this is what democracy looks like. They're using the word democracy, but what they're really disagreeing about is what kind of representation is necessary for representative democracy to be legitimate, right? Does that kind of get it at what you're, what you're thinking here? Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I would also push back a little bit on the Habesian view and say that, I mean, of course, at some point in history, especially when there were a, a certain number of um, monarchies which were legitimated by divine right theory, um, Habesian view could be argued to have taken some sort of, um, you know, um, standing there. Uh, and of course, in the, in the dissertation, that's one of the points that I make is that the Habesian view largely no longer exists, like you said, or basically doesn't exist at all, because the um, logic and persuasiveness that is required to explain it and to legitimate it to subjects, it's just not possible to execute that <laughs> at anymore. Um, may have been in the past, um, but certainly no longer. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing about the is about the dissertation is, of course, the way that it is framed and argued is from the perspective of examining authorit authoritarian governments um, and autocratic states. Um, and the deeper point is to realize that just because someone is talking about democracy um, doesn't mean that it's so different from authoritarian governments at all. And that representation is not only something that happens in democracy, but in all forms of ways where there is an authority figure and a group where that, that authoritarian that, that authority figure is leading or representing in some way. Um, and that people have different views of representation and legitimately believe um, with their full force of their mind and body in those things. And that doesn't mean that one view of representation is necessarily wrong or incorrect, but it's important to understand that people can understand this concept in different ways and be truly persuaded by it and that there's nothing necessarily wrong about that. And it's not necessarily true that one view is better than the other. But what is true is that each view, like you said, Ben, can be accused of not being representative. Um, and therefore, no view is immune to a perfect definition. Otherwise, it would be the definition of representation. And to me, my my journey through Cambridge and politics kind of, I mean, it made me view politics and political theory as this massive intellectual battle that has happened over the centuries between people arguing over what representation is. And I think for me, politics derives all from that. Everything comes from that. Every form of hierarchy, power structure, leader, everything comes from that, how you view representation. Even if you don't think you view representation in a certain way, everybody has an inherent way of viewing from it, whether that's something that they've learned from childhood, from reading literature, from what they've been taught in school, from what they learned at university, from what they've picked up around their culture and society. Everybody has an inherent view and that can change over time. But what's really interesting is when you start to look at how that view is distributed throughout society and throughout history and how that has influenced the rise and fall of different governments and political systems. Yeah. And this point that you make about authoritarian states, a lot of people go, well, isn't it obvious to people living in the People's Republic of China that there's no sense in which that rep republic belongs to the people or people living in the democratic People's Republic of North Korea? Isn't it obvious to people there that that's not democratic or that that republic doesn't belong to the people? Isn't it obvious to people in those states that they live in authoritarian states? And the answer that, that you, you give, and I think it is the right one, is that it's not obvious because you can have a conception of representation in which the representor has a lot of autonomy and superior expertise, provided that they are sufficiently reflective, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we have this kind of argument in our own democracies all the time where we still think that our representatives 
should be different from us in all kinds of ways or should make their own decisions in all kinds of ways. We don't have a straightforward fealty relationship with our representatives. We have elections which give us a little bit of a, a negative check on what our representatives do, but our representatives are not bound by anything that we instruct them to do. They can still do all sorts of different things. And just because there's an election doesn't mean we're going to get somebody who will do exactly what it is we want them to do. Oftentimes in democracy, you can throw the bums out, but only by electing additional bums <laughs> who will do broadly the same things that the people you've thrown out will, will have done. And so in that situation, the election becomes a way of laundering the system rather than a way of actually getting any kind of fealty relationship with the representative. I think the political weakness of these authoritarian systems is that they don't have a way of laundering. So they have to work a lot harder to maintain a sense of reflectiveness, right? And this often leads to a kind of uh, Schmidtian sort of sovereignty in which the sovereign represents the people and frames the people as having some kind of primordial pre-political set of characteristics or traits which the sovereign can embody, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And by doing that, then the sovereign's relationship to the people transcends any particular set of political institutions, any particular set of constitutional arrangements, and that makes all of the rest of the machinery of the state subject to the authority which the sovereign derives from having this personal relationship with the people, which is generally grounded on reflectiveness and therefore on a very thick kind of representation that nonetheless does not have a fealty relationship and allows the uh, sovereign to potentially be far more expert or far more trained or developed in particular disciplines. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I, th I, I think you've, you've, you make that point well, and I think it's an important point for people to hear because a lot of people walk around imagining still that their notion of what is representation or what is representative democracy is straightforwardly intuitive to everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, and that's just that, completely not true at all. Yeah. And people assume that if someone is is arguing that something else is representative or something else is democracy, that they could only be doing that cynically. People think that it's so obvious what or is representative. Devil's or, advocate, yeah. Right, right. Or or trying to ram some policy through and therefore adopting this view purely as as a, a kind of means to an end. Hypocritical hypocritical means to an end. But of course, there is immense, immense bending and twisting that goes on. When we start talking about representation yeah yeah and of course part of this um has naturally happened because of theorists having to legitimate their own governments throughout history um i mean one example that i love talking about is how the descriptive view um becomes popular in, in the american revolution through um john adams and madison um because of course um in order to legitimize the idea of, of electing a government democratically in the US um, um, during the constitutional debates and what goes on there in those discussions. There is this idea that um, that the people who will be elected by uh, the new American state will be much better than the, uh, the authoritarian King of England, George, um, because they are elected by the people, they'll be more virtuous, but they will also be similar in their ways of life. They will, they will almost reflect a picture of the people themselves. And that is, um, I'm sure there is some truth to what the people writing the constitution believe during that, but there is also an element where you have to ask yourself of how much these theorists are writing this in order to sell their own idea of government. 
And that's where this becomes really interesting because, of course, um, later on, Madison backtracks and admits that um, having having elections in large states ultimately favors um, elitism because it ends up selecting those who are best placed to not only compete in elections, but because elections themselves naturally select those who are who have some traits of uniqueness or difference. And therefore, it's, it almost does the reverse in some cases where it, it favors people who are distinctive. Um, and the way that that gets backtracked in political theory is very interesting. The same way um, that the accountability view, this idea that there is very strong fealty in representation, is built primarily, I would say, by Rousseau and, and, and his social contract, where he first of all outlines as we discussed in the previous episode, that no legitimate government can be built on force. Whereas Hobbes would argue, well, yes, it can be built on force because, yes, um, Hobbes has the model where you can make a government by agreement, but he also has the model where a, a new um, person can be included in the multitude by essentially being threatened with death or being conquered, as I would call it. And so Rousseau says, well, no, this isn't legitimate government. A legitimate government can only be formed by mutual agreement. Um, and then this, of course, gets built by CA. And CA says, well, okay, that's fair enough. But we have this large French state. How are we going to manage that? Now we need to elect some people. But hang on, if we elect these people, then we're removing the general will to one degree. So now we have to make sure these representatives are loyal. So now we have to reintroduce some more fealty mechanisms into that. And now what CA has done is he has created an extra distinction to that. And then, of course, you have the more radical um, Jacobites like Marat who come along and says, well, OK, but we actually can't trust these representatives at all because they're just um, being politicians for their own sake. So actually, we should just go back to really, really Rousseauian terms. We should go back to as much direct democracy as possible. We should have as much fealty as possible. And there's this strain and battle that just keeps happening. Um, and of course, if we go back to the ancient Greeks, we have Plato arguing um, for a physician-like view where it makes absolutely no sense um, to refer to the people to elect anybody because um, then you just become ruled by orators um, and people who, are, uh, who do not have the right type of soul, who are not gold souls, um, who are not ready to rule the city as philosopher kings. Um, and of course... Um, this view, when read by a lot of contemporary readers, is completely bizarre and, and wrong and authoritarian. And, um, but back then, um, I mean, it was also um, frowned upon. But it's interesting how each theorist has to justify their form of representation to be the correct one, in some ways to almost achieve the picture of the world that they wish to happen. And the most interesting, I think, is, is Robespierre, because he does exactly what you were mentioning, Ben. Um, with having uh, a perception of high expertise because he places himself as the figure in the French Revolution who can interpret the general will um, more than anybody else. But at the same time, he has a lot of autonomy. And at the same time, he does have a level of reflectiveness because he is reflecting the Parisian mob. He is reflecting the people in the capital who are unhappy, the Saint-Culotte, who are creating a lot of riots and protesting and a lot of mob violence. He's trying to reflect those people Whilst having, whilst having a perception of having more expertise in the general will and also being autonomous. And that is what I like to call the top-down symbolic view because it's reversing the accountability view in a faked way. Um, 
but we well, can get see, to that now, later. When you talk about top-down symbolic, so there are a couple of things in there that I want to talk about. So one is, is there is a point in your thesis where you have this line, right, from fealty to autonomy, and you position these different views on this line. So, of course, Habesian authorization, because there is no demand that the sovereign represent uh, particular people or the multitude, that's an extremely autonomous view. Next, you have top-down symbolic, where the leader has some kind of, often a kind of reflectiveness connection, but uh, nothing else beyond that which would bind their decision-making, apart from continuing to reflect some value set or or cultural value set associated, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Then the physician view, which involves some kind of expertise on top of that, where you're drawing on some kind of, of competence. So that's even more fragile because once you have competence as part of the metric, then if you make mistakes, you do things that don't work out, it's harder to hold on to that kind of representation. And then you, you move some distance to descriptive, where with descriptive, you are actually having the values and preferences and making the decisions, which in some sense, you are, you are saying other people, the, the, the masses want you to make. So you are doing something to try to show that what you are doing does accord with what they want, right? And then accountability, where they can straightforwardly decide if what you're doing accords with what they want. And that means even if you are doing what they said they wanted, if they decide they don't like that, they can, through an accountability mechanism, go, uh, no, we don't like you, right? Yeah. So you put all of those on a line, and so you talk about top-down symbolic, and you say, well, kind of like Robespierre, but top-down symbolic also sounds like, say, Xi Jinping, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Xi Jinping and Robespierre, yeah, you could say that maybe Xi Jinping is somewhere, uh, is, has got some physician because the Chinese state also relies very much on a competence mechanism, right? Maybe a better, a better example would be Kim Jong-un as top-down symbolic, right? Yeah. Where there's yeah, less yeah. of an em- emphasis on competence. There can be famines and that doesn't really threaten the legitimacy of the regime, right? But Kim Jong-un and the Kim family have much more stable control over North Korea than Robespierre had over France. And part of the reason why is that Robespierre was top-down symbolic, but for an accountability view, right? Mm -hmm. Robespierre used an accountability view to argue his way into a top-down symbolic position. But then because he said, I am legitimate because I am accountable to the masses, that created a mechanism by which he could be overthrown, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why the top-down symbolic views can often be quite fragile because it has to come from one of the others. Right, right. But if you have just a kind of reflective vis- a reflective notion, right, if it's backed by descriptive rather than by accountability, then it's easier to argue that there is a descriptive connection, right? It's easier yeah. to argue mm-hmm. for something that's vaguer and more general. Whereas if you have said, no, the representative really has to be accountable and should be able to be revoked or withdrawn at any time, it's, that's a more fragile basis. So with top-down mm-hmm. symbolic, because there's a symbolizing of some other relationship, which would otherwise, usually in the minds of, of many people, involve more fealty, involve more deference to the mass, top-down symbolic can be fragile if the thing that it's being based on is lost, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was one thing I kind of wanted to do. I wanted to kind of line those views up because you've mentioned them a couple of times now and put them in an order and discuss precisely what they mean for people. The The other thing mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about is that 
in your discussion, you sometimes make reference to, say, Plato or Rome or the Middle Ages. And there's a, an important question here for whether representation is the relevant concept in ancient and medieval thought. So, of course, David Runciman argues that what really distinguishes the modern world and modern states is their focus on representation rather than personal ties, right? And or dynastic ties or lines mm -hmm. of, of yeah. feudal loyalty, right? David argues that what separates the modern state is that it becomes focused around representation. And what makes Hobbes a genius is that he's the one who really introduces this concept and, and gives it life, right? Now, there are some relationships mm -hmm. in antiquity and the Middle Ages that look plausibly not so different from representation, right? So if somebody wanted to push back against David's view, they might make the argument, for instance, that divine right of kings is in some way sort of like a representation view because the monarch is representing God's will on earth in some way, right? And even if the oh, yeah. monarch mm -hmm. is acting in a way that's deviant from nat natural law or God's, uh, God's commands, uh, that you know, a bad monarch could still be a punishment from God and that itself could, and, and indeed on many theological views, must be in accordance with the divine will. Right, so th there being an idea that the monarch is kind of a vector through which God's will comes into the material world, that the, the king mm. uh, therefore has the right to rule because they're reflecting that, or the vessel through which that is imposed. Uh, yeah. Then you know, Hobbes is careful to distinguish his view from what he calls mere consent or consensus et concordia, right, which is the view which dominates in the Roman period. And this is the idea that the Roman emperor has a consensus, that there is a consensus among the Senate and people of Rome on the identity of the emperor, right? This consensus being tied to some degree on the emperor's charisma, on the emperor having the qualities that are necessary for an, an emperor, which involves, for instance, the maintenance of the Pax, the protection of, of Rome from invasion, from internal rebellion, from usurpation. Right, that consensus right. is quasi metaphysical because, of course, there is no effort made to establish it uh, through any kind of vote or any kind of of a specific asking for consent. And yet, there are signs and symbols of consent in the Roman Empire. For instance, when an emperor ascends, the cities of the empire are supposed to do something to show that they do recognize and endorse the emperor, right? The cities are meant to do this, though, not necessarily particular people. So the political subunits of the empire, they make a show of their endorsement of the emperor, right? And then the emperor's lack of charisma, you know, if the emperor performs poorly, the emperor can lose this consensus through making mistakes, right? Uh, if the emperor hmm. doesn't look like they have this divine uh, charisma of Augustus, then that can threaten legitimacy. And that can be established through simply the fact that usurpers have popped up or simply the fact that the emperor has been defeated in battle or that invaders are making their way into the lands of the empire, right? Uh, but this yeah. would be this would show that the emperor lacked the qualities in a more real sense, but it might also show in a metaphysical sense that the emperor lacks the favor of the gods. So this charisma is a charisma that is material in the sense that it's the charisma you need to uh, succeed. It's the virtues that you need to be successful in in material affairs, but it's also a kind of potentially a charisma with the gods. It's a relationship with the gods and a favor, 
right? So that there are lots of different aspects to this consensus at Concordia, but they're, they're, it doesn't seem to be representation in the Habesian sense because there is no straightforward argument here that the emperor is uh, personating the Roman state and that the Roman state exists as a kind of abstract entity. Instead, there's a consensus among the Senate and the people on the identity of the emperor, which is tied in part to the emperor's charisma and therefore to the emperor's performance. So there's some related concepts here at play. Like you could say that the emperor's charisma is sort of like his expertise, right? Oh, but, yeah. it, mm -hmm. but it's not precisely the same as expertise and there isn't really a mediating structure. So I think what David would argue is that in the Roman case, there is no mediating commonwealth structure, right? That instead, Rome is, is very much about people signing up to a consensus around an emperor and that that's more of a personal connection, right? And that's why the individual cities personally bestow new emperor uh, kind of tax gifts. It's a, it's a tax insofar as you are very much expected to do it. But when a new emperor ascends, the cities give these gifts to the new emperor, which are legally mandated gifts, but they give them. And if they go over the top and they do more than they're expected to do, that can be a way of creating favor or impressing a new emperor, right? But they give these, these gifts and it's to the emperor, right? Uh, and, and the state is very much the emperor's state, you know, rather than a kind of commonwealth which they come together and and form or make, right? Uh, you still have you know this notion of a Roman Republic, and so this is where it gets a little messy because you go well there is a race publica in Rome and that is something which is distinct from the emperor, right? And the emperor is the first citizen of that, right? But it doesn't sound precisely like Hobbes. I think we can all agree that it doesn't sound precisely like Hobbes. And so if you know, there is representation, it's a very different kind of representation from the Habesian. And the same goes for the medieval divine right of king's view. If you want to call that representation, to do that, you have to kind of ex expand and stretch that term. It's not something which naturally fits into Hobbes's discussion or the discussions which follow on from Hobbes. Would you agree with yeah. that, or do you, do you want to push and say that those views are, are more clear-cut representation views? I, I mean, one, I think that that's certainly one thing that I struggled to figure out during this, because that is a central question, of course, is whether representation is just a modern concept and it's just been invented to legitimize governments, or it's been invented because we now have better forms of government. I don't think it's quite that simple. I think well, personally, I I actually really don't like using the term representation because um, it has so many different meanings to different people, and therefore I think using it is actually not that great of a thing to do. But it's necessary to use it because otherwise it's very difficult to understand how power works. And the reason why I use it and why I think it has to be used is to get past this authoritarian versus democratic distinction because like you were saying at the very start of the episode there's very easy ways to try and distinguish these things like for example the trustee and the mandate theory and um, a lot of people might look at authoritarian governments or at ancient rome um, or at various 
autocratic structures and would say, oh, well, that is just, you know, built up by military power and it's just oppressive and it's just rule of guns and that's it. There's nothing else. And it's always more complex than that. There's always something else behind that power that is pushing it, that is holding it there. And that is the reason why it's still there. It's never quite as simple as just having military power and democracy being based on consensus through voting. It's never that simple. There's always some level of reflectiveness or there's some expertise in there or there's some sort of fealty mechanism playing in the background. And you have to look more closely at that than just saying, oh, it's military power. Yeah, military power helps. Military power um, can do a lot of things, but there's so much more to it than that. And the reason why I think representation has to be used as a category and you have to look through these lenses, um, even at medieval and ancient political structures is because otherwise there is a disconnect between those two and the you end up discarding one and only focusing on the other and saying oh okay well those people were strange now we have this i don't think it's that simple i think it's important to understand where those structures were coming from and how they worked and to then better understand how our modern day political and power structures work so representation well, is almost a way that you could understand power better. And using the term is not great, but if you don't use it, it's really hard to understand it in the first place. So it's kind of a catch-22. I think in that discussion, you brush up against the term legitimacy a lot. Certainly, ancient and medieval states mm -hmm. had to appear legitimate, right? I think the question is yeah, whether the yeah. legitimation criteria was similar enough to our criteria that a term like representation should be used to describe what is involved in legitimating the state all the way back, or whether it's a term that should be associated with a change in legitimation criteria in the kinds of things that were necessary to legitimate states. Now, I think you're right to say that when, when we draw too sharp a distinction between these two periods, it's often a way of dismissing ancient and medieval ideas uh, and minimizing their relevance. And I, I don't go in for that. So I certainly think legitimacy is relevant throughout the whole period. But it's, it's a front question whether the best way to describe the legitimation mechanics of an ancient or medieval society is through that, that concept of representation, which seems to apply more straightforwardly to the writers who actually use the term, the mainly you know, English and, and French writers who use that term in, uh, in, in uh, more recent centuries. So I think that's, that's a question that it's, it's fun always to play with that question because when you ask that, once you've granted the premise that, of course, legitimacy mattered, it wasn't as if you could just might makes right your way through all of ancient history. You did have to legitimate what you were doing. Mm -hmm. you know, once you've granted that premise, then you can really have some fun in comparing the kinds of stories and narratives that worked in the ancient world or the medieval world with what we have now. And you know, part of the fun is in just uncovering those stories, because I think a lot of people are so far estranged from those stories that it's difficult even to imagine what they might have been. And you see the evidence of that in a lot of ancient and medieval period pieces where a lot of modern ideas get projected onto these these uh, political actors, and it gets kind of assumed that they're thinking like we might imagine a modern person might think if they lived in a society with more primitive technology. But of course, it's not like that. It's 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 a bit different, and the arguments were were a bit different. Not so different that they're completely estranged, but uh, it's that question of how different were they. 
Anyway, we've we've gone on quite a while without including Edmund, and I feel very bad about this because I know Edmund has something interesting to say, and I want to hear what that is because he always does. So, Edmund, what is your interesting thing that you've been thinking about? I think the the way in which the discussion took a turn towards legitimacy is very interesting because um, uh, there's a part of your your great dissertation, Andrew, where you, you argue that because there are all these different uh, accounts or categories of representation um, in how the representatives reflect uh, the uh, reflect the images and aesthetics of the of the represented. Uh, their ex- the expertise of the representatives and the autonomy of the representatives, um, you know, because there there are all these different ways of seeing representation. Uh, there's no one single way. So you argue that quote political legitimacy is therefore that which fulfills an individual's values of representation in their present reality. I was just about to say that quote. Thank you for finding that. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a really nice, uh, a really nice quote because, um, especially that last bit. I'm not sure if it's deliberate or not, but in their present reality, kind of brings to mind the idea that representation is uh, literally re-presenting something. Uh, something it's fluid. Yeah, yeah, it, it's taking something that. Well, yeah, it, it is fluid, um, but it also, I think, implies some kind of separation. And I think this is a sense in which representation is a liberal legitimation story or a modern li- legitimation story, at least, because it implies um, some kind of separation between what, what, what was present and what is being made present again, what is being represented. So uh, I, I think the... Um, uh, in, in, in Runciman and Vieira's book on representation... Um, uh, they, they note that uh, you know, the m- most basic understanding of representation is as a principal agent uh, problem, where you've got a, um, uh, they say, quote, the most straightforward version of the principal agent relation sees individuals hiring other individuals to do some job for them that they cannot do for themselves. Here, one person, the principal, appoints another, the agent, to perform some action or function on their behalf. Uh, and, and so, what they're suggesting is that the represent uh, the representatives are um, the uh, the agents who are acting on behalf of the principles, who are the uh, in a Hobbesian understanding of, uh, as you know, Andrew, representation as authorization. It's the the citizens authorizing the the, the sovereign or being taken to authorize the sovereign to represent them collectively. And so, of course, here this kind of kernel of the idea of representation, we've got this basic separation um, between the, the the principal and the agent, between the uh, represented and the representatives. Um, I guess which is present is not quite uh, clear. Maybe the, maybe maybe the sovereign is uh, present to our other sovereigns, or uh, diplomats are present to other uh, our diplomats, but the citizens are present to themselves. You can you can get in loops here, but uh, I think the basic kind of sense in which representation is a modern concept is that it does imply this kind of separation between the different parts of the state. The idea that uh, the, these parts aren't 
just parts of a whole, they're kind of parts in themselves. And this kind of links to the distinction people often draw between representative democracy in the modern world and direct democracy in ancient Athens, where there was no separation between representatives and represented, because although at any given day, not any everyone would be making political decisions, uh, the fact that at any given day when people were making decisions because they were on this kind of rotational uh, uh, system of fulfilling different offices at different times, which citizens would rotate around uh, and coming together in the agora for for bigger decisions, you know, there wasn't this. Partly because things were so fluid then, a, represent, uh, a representative, as we would call it, wouldn't necessarily hold office for that long a time before they get rotated out. Uh, and without elections, the notion of representation is even less, e- e- even less a thing. And, and I think Runciman and Vieira note that the whole notion of representation as a principal agent format is, uh, is a, you know, quote, borrowed from private law and commonly used in, in economics. And so... I think there's a sense in which representation is not only a modern, uh, not only a modern concept as distinct from ancient concepts of legitimacy, democratic or otherwise, but representation is also something that comes out of the modern economic system, and um, and makes sense of kind of conceptions of democracy as a kind of debtor relationship, uh, where the citizens are uh, are kind of shareholders of the kind of of the country incorporated and the uh, uh, and the representatives are their kind of managers or CEOs of the corporation uh, and then the country as a whole is that is that is that kind of uh, is that kind of corporate entity which is being represented and so I, I I think that one way of understanding representation that I think is is helpful is as a separation, and I think one of uh, a further separation to the, the principal agent one, um, in order to understand why that separation emerges, I think it help. It's quite helpful to look to Andrew's uh, tripartite separation between these three categories, which I think are you know just brilliant. You know, you've got the autonomy, uh, uh, fealty, dichotomy, the reflectiveness category, and the expertise category. Um, and I was wondering about these three categories. What what, what what they might mean and what might explain them. Um, and I, I think one way I was thinking about it was that expertise seems a bit like, because uh, you note the physician view, uh, Andrew, is kind of similar to Plato's where expertise is valued quite highly. Uh, so expertise seems here to be a bit like kind of philosophy. Um, and reflectiveness, I think you've noted in the past as it has a feeling of catharsis when you feel your your representatives reflect you aesthetically that they they are like you that kind of allows you to have a feeling of togetherness in a way that kind of reflectiveness is an attempt to escape the separation or attempt to imagine yourself as one in the state um and so that kind of provides that feeling of catharsis uh to that that cathartic unity as a result of the repression of the repression of unity which is implicit in the kind of very notion of, of representation as a separation between the representatives and the represented and, and then the and, and that kind of catharsis is a kind of passion it's kind of an emotional display more than anything else and then the autonomy category seems to have some connection of course to 
political power uh, and the fact that Hobbes really has power at the centre of his philosophy and you note that it, the Hobbesian representation puts autonomy first. So I, I, I wonder if these three categories can be understood um, alternatively as as power, passion, and philosophy, and uh, <laughs> I think, uh, and, and uh, I'm, I'm actually gonna uh, go wild and add a couple more P's to this. Just not, not just because it's alliterative, though. That's you know that that's part of what's going on here. But uh, I think that one question that's worth asking is why do these things get separated? Why do why do autonomy or power, reflectiveness or kind of passion, expertise or philosophy, why are these notions of representation separated? You know that they, they don't obviously co-vary. Some people value one, some people value the other. You know, what, what's, what's led to this anarchy of different views of representation? Uh, you, uh, and you know, why, why are all these views so disjunct and conflictual with one another? Uh, why is legitimacy in the modern world something on which there's practically no consensus? And uh, I, I think one answer is that uh, there has been a... I think it's probably two things. So the, the lack of unity among these different concepts of representation is, on the one hand, perhaps explained by the fact that philosophy has lost its place at the helm of legitimacy. And here I'm going to kind of, you know, briefly draw on Plato to suggest that for Plato, the reason why it's good to have philosophy having a role in the state is that uh, is that philosophers trained in philosophy will try to attend to the needs of all different kinds of people uh, because they are drawing on all their different uh, capabilities because the philosopher will think look to the whole, will look to the whole of the state, not just their own needs. Um, that's kind of Plato's definition of the philosopher, someone who is almost selfless, who sees themselves as nothing, who is, you know, Socrates says, you know, knows that they know nothing. And will, as a result of that, just look to the needs of other people and will try to satisfy those needs. And so when philosophy ceases to be something that's valued in representation, I think uh, there are a couple of... Uh, a couple of the categories of representation, what were the names of them? Such as, yeah, su- such as account the, the accountability and uh, descri- especially the descriptive view, which just don't, uh, which doesn't value uh, expertise or philosophy at all in representation or or legitimacy. That seems to, I think, lead to a breakdown of these categories. Because if if philosophy is no longer t- taking a leading role then there's nothing stopping these other categories from just going to war with each other. And the second thing I think is going on is that there's a one of the things that could hold these categories together is some kind of balance of power and some kind of balance, in other words, between autonomy and fealty. Uh, and I think that that is undermined by the fourth the fourth P I'm going for here, which is, uh, uh, which is profit. Um, well, there's a fifth too, which is prices. So I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest that um, that that the the profit motive that's that's kind of in, in, intrinsic to the kind of modern market system undermines the priority of philosophy by pulling passion first. If people are just pursuing profits, then they're pulling. Uh, well, what they're doing is by trying to sell stuff to people, they're putting people's passions before their reason 
uh, trying, in the desperate effort to sell more and more goods, we're appealing to people's wants rather than their needs, just to create a market for things, even if people don't need those things. And that, I think, that that that, that drive to uh, boost profits through boosting sales is going to really undermine the priority of philosophy and really put passion first. Uh, you know, th- I think this is evident in when you try to, you know, uh, tr- trying to find, uh, trying to find your uh, f- philosophy from um, popular internet videos. You- you'll-, you'll find soon enough that the-, the 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 really popular stuff doesn't really have much philosophy in there. It's really just a parade, and it just becomes this passionate emotional display. Almost as if you're seeing somebody playing a philosopher who has all the passion and emotions and ways of talking as a philosopher does, but who is really just spouting nonsense. And, and so I think so. The the profit motive has really undermined uh, philosophy there, um, and has meant that philosophy is almost banished from politics, um, such that politicians are, you know, characterised as looking after their own needs and not looking to the needs of the whole anymore. And the second thing is, that I think. The, the other feature of the modern market system is that not only do you have this pursuit of profits, but you've also got this price system, rapid changes to prices. And what does that do? I think we I noted in the French Revolution episode that when you've got all these rapidly changing prices, you've got rapidly changing um, power as well. Because um, as, as Benjamin noted on the previous episode, Montesquieu's distinction between wealth and power is a bit silly. Because when you've got when you've got money, you can translate that into power. You can try to buy political offices. Uh, affluence, as Martin Gillen's notes, can translate to influence politically. And so, uh, as a result of that, as a result of the market system being so dynamic, such that prices are changing so much you've got these changes to the, the the balance of power. And that, I think, leads to some kind of swinging between, on the one hand, the kind of autonomy view of representation and, and on the other hand, the fealty view of representation. W- one day, the representatives are merely the slaves of the people, and the next day, they are their tyrants and their masters. And I, I think this swinging comes in part from these massively, you know, disruptive changes to the market system. I mean, we can only, you know, we only need to look to the 30s to see what the effects of a depression uh, as a result of a of a sudden a sudden shock to the market system can do, uh, and and the shocks politically that come from uh, come from that economic shock. Uh, shock. Or, or more recently, uh, Adam Tooze's book crashed. Uh, 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 and his upcoming book, uh, uh, Shutdown, I believe, uh, about how you can, you know, s- look to something like the 2008 financial crisis, and suddenly you've got all these different changes and challenges to ways of thinking about representation, a rise of more kind of activist, um, perhaps more uh, descriptive uh, modes of representation after a, a kind of a, a prolonged period of political apathy. And so I think we, we can see how. These changes to the um, price system lead to political disruption, and I think also changes to uh, ch- changes to the power of of, of representatives uh, versus represented. One day the representatives are just getting along with their job, and the next day suddenly the representatives are saying, "No, we're unhappy with how things are going. We're you know we're not happy that uh, that millions of homes have been foreclosed um, because 
because the banks were let off the leash. We're not happy with how things are going. We're going to demand more of a say for, for ourselves and we're going to demand that representatives actually pay attention to what we need. And uh, And in that moment, suddenly the representatives had lost the autonomy that they previously had and are desperately scrambling to appeal to whatever's polling well that day. And instead of taking a step back and saying, okay, what's what's causing this disruption? What's actually going on here? They're just going to be trying to, uh, using catharsis, they might pivot to, to passion to try to just directly appeal to what people want. So uh, very briefly, to, 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 to summarise that, I think perhaps what's going on here is that representation as a modern mode of legitimation comes out of the modern mode of production and that the way in which uh, commercial society has risen in the past couple of hundred years through the pursuit of profits and rapid changes to prices has driven the separation between philosophy, power and passion, which has, instead of bringing people together around a common way of providing legitimacy to states has instead broken these categories of legitimacy apart into different ways of representing uh, citizens and representing states. And, uh, and I think has this, this whole thing has contributed quite a great deal to the current crisis of, of democracy, uh, uh, legitimacy, and, uh, and the way in which these things have been uh, managed quite badly, I think, by the concept of representation. In that discussion, you make a point about corporations that I thought was was particularly interesting. The state is a corporation, and David Runciman similarly argues that what distinguishes Hobbes's theory is that he posits the state as an artificial agent, as a kind of corporate agent, right? Mm. Uh, if you contrast this to, say, Aristotle and his categories of regimes, in Aristotle, you have monarchy ruled by the one, aristocracy ruled by the best, or oligarchy ruled by the few, democracy ruled by the many, right? So it's ruled by different numbers of people, right? And I mm. think what we, when people want to distinguish the modern state from ancient or medieval states, what they want to argue is that you no longer have a state which is ruled by any particular set of people, right? You have a, a state that isn't ruled by the one, the few, or the many, but instead a state which is a kind of impersonal structure where the decisions that it makes are not any particular person's decisions, but the output of processes, complex processes which involve lots and lots of different people making inputs, right? Uh, and those mm. inputs are just small, small contributing factors to what the institution will mechanistically produce, right? And okay. this institution is sitting in a sea of other institutions. So this state sits in a state system uh, and a market system, a system of capital mobility. We, all of these systems have sets of rules for how all of these different artificial agents, corporations and states interact with each other and influence one another's decisions. And that more and more the decisions come about from the interactions of these agents, uh, of these artificial agents in further artificial structures, which further assimilate and accumulate different inputs from these different agents, from these different corporations and states, and produce decisions from them, right? And if you think about modernity in this way as, as being about artificial agents and impersonal systems, and you contrast this with an ancient or medieval world with personal rule, either by particular people or particular classes of people, 
right? In Jeffrey Winter's book, Oligarchy, he argues that what we have now is a civil oligarchy in which oligarchs don't have to rule directly because they rule through a system of institutions, right? Which doesn't require their direct participation, but which also does not empower any other section of society to rule, right? And so in that case, what representative democracy does is it makes this impersonal system appear personal. It represents this impersonal system as if it were personal, as if you were connected to it and what you were doing has influence over what occurs. But the reality is at most you have this kind of negative vote. You get one vote among many, many votes, which if lots of people exercise those votes in the same way can lead to a given representative or set of representatives being removed and replaced with other representatives. But those representatives are then plunged into the same kind of of institutional situation. So merely getting rid of or replacing them does not necessarily alter how these impersonal systems operate. Right, and the the idea is that you've kind of built up in in the modern world this set of ever more complicated, ever more challenging impersonal institutions that are too big for any person to rule. They're not just too big to fail; they're they're too big to rule. So there is no ruler, right? And in this kind of situation, you have a need to impress upon people this idea that they are still being represented by this system that their inputs into this system are still valuable and meaningful, right? When the sheer fact of the scale of it, the number of people involved, the deep interconnectedness of the particular states and corporations means that any given person's inputs will, of course, be meaningless to it, right? And I think in that kind of context, what you tend to get is increasing levels of reflectiveness as a way of trying to make up for the fact that this system cannot in any way, have fealty to any given individual's expectations, drives, or wishes, right? All it can Mm. do is try harder and harder and harder to make you feel as if it looks like you or it looks like your values. It can't do things differently that are important, but it can, in unimportant areas, take on different aesthetics. In unimportant areas, it can present all sorts of different faces. And if it can get you invested in the faces it's presenting in the way that it is, in the signs and symbols that it is dressing up in, in its accoutrements, then the fact that the impersonal structure demands particular outputs and those outputs can't really change no matter what you want, doesn't become a major legitimation problem. And I think when you look at ancient and medieval societies, the thing that is different is that you have particular people who are the rulers, not an impersonal corporate state. And those particular people are being judged in terms of their performance, either as individuals or as groups, uh, as, as bearers of the state, right? I think that's that's the distinction that you're kind of getting at there. And I think that's if there's value in talking about representation as a modern concept rather than as an ancient concept, it's this idea that the individual is no longer part of a collective in, in modernity. The individual is uh, kind of estranged and on a bit of an island interfacing with this impersonal system. I always like to get back to Tocqueville and this idea that Tocqueville has of the kind of, of, of absolutism where Tocqueville is worrying about the tyranny of 
a, a king like a Louis the Sixteenth that has no mediating structures around, right? So it's just the the king and then the individual, and there's nothing really to unite the individual with the king, right? There's a kind of direct, unmediated relationship, which is terrifying because of the sheer power of the king versus the total lack of power of the the individual subject. And I like to compare it to the Lord of the Rings when Sam and Frodo are walking to Mordor and there's all of this desolation and very little to look at except for the tower where Sauron is with the giant eye, right? And the tower is is the monarch who has all this power and all of this importance. And in the face of it, it's hard to have any kind of real meaningful relationship because there's nothing to mediate, nothing to tie the individual to anything larger, right? And I think that the thing that is especially difficult about the modern state is that the the tower is not Sauron, it's not Louis the Sixteenth, it's not a person, but an impersonal system, right? And so the tower only superficially has a face, and that's the face of the representor. And the function of the of the representor is to represent the tower to the subject, to the citizen, in such a way that the citizen or subject will rep- will will agree that the tower is sufficiently human to to be embraced. And so the function then of the representative is to make an inhuman system appear human, to put a human face on it, to make it feel like it is still a system in which there are rulers who are ruling, as opposed to a system that works by a set of impersonal mechanics that has kind of grown beyond the need for any particular people to decide. Is that kind of what you were getting at, Edmund? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a, you know, really interesting way of thinking about it as this kind of personal impersonal dichotomy. And I guess that maps onto the direct representative distinction because the idea of how in Constance's uh, essay on the liberty of the ancients compared with that of the moderns, he contrasts modern kind of representative um, ways of doing politics with ancient Athenian direct uh, democracy. And that works because it's a relatively small number of enfranchised uh, uh, citizens, whereas the fact that there's so many people in modern representative democracy means that you can't base it on the direct personal ties that underpin direct democracy. And you have to go for something much more abstract and impersonal. And um, yeah, I think one problem is that we do try to restore that direct democracy. People do try to restore it, but often, as you note, through this kind of catharsis, uh, through this uh, display of reflectiveness, uh, which is, in fact, a false display, because as uh, psychoanalysts argue, when you repress something, like if you, you know, say, repress unity um, by you know, abstracting from personal ties, then the attempt to bring unity back through catharsis will not solve that problem. It'll just uh, continue it through other means. And the idea of uh, uh, psychoanalysis is that it somehow balances between uh, repression and catharsis. Now, of course, don't have time to get into that, but I guess there is a question of whether there is a way of mediating between these these different extremes, between, on the one hand, uh, the attempt to just kind of bring uh, direct democracy back through catharsis and and on the other hand, just reliance on impersonal institutions. And I wonder if one one, medi- one way of mediating between direct and representative democracy is through actually 
building some kind of uh, some kind of movement that has an impersonal uh, as well as a personal face uh, has kind of representatives representatives and represented um, members but also is built on kind of grassroots personal ties and that I guess that's the, often the ideal of the local aspects of modern democracy that you have the you have the national level and you have the local levels, um, but often it's the case that these levels are quite are quite disjointed. Like the kind of local democracy has a very different face from kind of uh, from countrywide uh, democracy, and it seems hard to bring those two things together. We're always finding ourselves having to choose between the personal and the impersonal. And I think this does come back to the way in which we're kind of thrown from one extreme to the other uh, by the, the to and fro's of kind of precarious modern life. I, I, think, I think kind of what you're, what you're saying here, you know, it, it kind of highlights how we, we won't tolerate a system which is straightforwardly impersonal or personal. And so what we end up with no, is a yeah. hypocritical system, which claims to be both, but of course can't be both at once. Because yeah, if course, you yeah. if you had the honest impersonal system of the Habesian state, then you would have to acknowledge that the the sovereign owes owes you nothing. And indeed, in the more complex kind of world that we live in now, it's very difficult to identify a particular person who has sovereignty. What you have is a kind of impersonal set of of things, which doesn't really answer to anybody. And you could just uh, you could just take that view of it and just render it naked, a naked artifice, right? But yeah. if you do that, it's terrifying. It looks totalitarian and horrific, right? Now, conversely, you could try to resubordinate it to particular people and to put the state underneath uh, actual rulers, right? And I think the most common way of trying to do this is through bringing back direct democracy. That's what people who are interested in this often do. But it's not just that. It's also attempts to empower a particular person to run the state autocratically. And it's interesting because the direct Democrats and the people who want a particular person to be in charge often position themselves as complete opposites of one another, but they share in common a desire to make the impersonal modern machine of the state personal, right? Whether you yeah. want to make it a democracy or a monarchy or an aristocracy, if you want it to be one of those things, you don't want it to be a modern state. And so in, in that respect, both the far right and the far left share that in common. They want to make the state feel personal. So they want to go out of representative democracy into something that is more, more personal and more empowering they they want to be vicariously empowered through an institution which directly empowers particular people to make decisions in a way which allows them to deviate heavily from the imperatives and needs of this impersonal structure and if we did that it would be it would be so chaotic if we if we actually went in that direction people would experience it as a kind of tyranny because all of these rules that we have that enable this very complex modern world to operate require credibility. They require that it not be the case that particular people can just come in and change those rules. The prospect of particular people coming in and changing those rules is the only thing which can really pose an existential threat to this system, and it causes this system immense immense aggravation if it thinks that there's any possibility, no matter how remote, of particular people coming in and altering these rules, which need to be credibly left in place for the thing to go on as it as it goes. 
So I think that neither of those options of trying to personalize the system again or rendering it nakedly impersonal fix ultimately the problem no, of, yeah. of the modern state and, and representation and representative democracy feeling like a dissatisfying, hypocritical hodgepodge of things. And so the argument that David makes is that liberal democracy just requires hypocrisy and it requires that we find ways of propagating hypocritical fusions of these things and that we just say that we can do both somehow and we just tell each other that we are doing both until we believe it. It, it requires a kind of refusal to, to see it as it is because if you insist on seeing it as it is, then it's not something that will look legitimate to you. You have to veil it. And I think when David makes that point, it's very similar to the point Lukacs makes about reification and the need to persuade yourself that these legitimation stories are true because of the impossibility of having a legitimation narrative that is really satisfying. Right, which I guess feels itself like an, extre an extreme between the idea on the one hand that we have a, a minimally satisfying legitimation story and the idea that all alternatives are just completely unachievable rather than something in between, something that's not necessarily perfectly, uh, I don't know, that's, that's perfectly legitimate, but a regime that's legitimate enough or more legitimate than the, the current one. There, there don't seem to be many people who want that, who don't want to just transform representative democracy into this direct interpersonal utopia, but who instead want to repersonalize the impersonal structures through actually changing the institution somehow and changing the economy somehow, um, for actually making substantive institutional change such that we will still have to do some degree of playing around with, uh, playing around with the framing of, of it. Well, there's, there'll still be an element of kind of, uh, Role playing in, in in politics, there'll always be something that's not quite there. That's always a bit. That's it's always a bit up in the air. But by changing the institutions to make it more balanced, uh, more unified, then at least we won't face the current problems. There'll, there'll still be some problems, but there seems to be this kind of alternation between having everything in politics and having nothing. When maybe we can have something and something more than what we currently have. Well, and the other thing that tends to happen, right? If you're not going in the direction of this fully transformative, direct or autocratic alternative, what you then get are reforms which make it appear as if you have brought the personal back in without actually bringing the personal back in. This happens a lot where you'll get some kind of concession to a direct democratic perspective or a concession to a more centralized uh, monarchical perspective, say the uh, move in France from the Fourth Republic to the Fifth Republic, Gaulism and the, the Gaullist presidential republic in France, right? That would be a move toward something more like rule by the one. Uh, and those moves end up, instead of meaningfully altering this system, giving the system a new human face that is more plausible than its old human face. So they end up sublimating a lot of this and they become another level of reification on top of what was already there. So if you're, if you're to find reforms which don't do that, which genuinely reform the thing, 
but which don't tear through the system to the point at which it's it's just anarchic chaos. That's mm. really the trick, isn't it? It's to find meaningful reforms which change what's going on, but change it in a way that is durable and workable. These kind of in-between reforms that don't invite the chaos of, of the kind of revolution of direct democracy, right? Right. But which also are meaningful and not just a superficial way of putting a new face on the same old thing. And mm. what tends to happen is that reforms will be presented as doing this when they are doing one of the other things. I think about the situation in California, where in California, there have been a lot of direct democratic reforms that have been appendaged onto the representative system. And mm. because the representative system is still there, the direct democratic reforms have not really made it different. But what they have done is they've created institutions in California which don't fit well with the existing representative institutions and which often lead to gridlock. So say they'll have a referendum on a particular policy. This will tie the government's hands. It will have to, say, raise spending or cut taxes in some form or fashion. And then you have a, a clash between the vision of the elected representatives or the needs of the bureaucratic state and what the people have voted to do through a referendum and it being very difficult to reconcile those, those things because the issues that come up in the referendum can often be highly divergent from the real material needs of the bureau bureaucratic state or of the globalized trade system or, or what have you. Similar kind of thing with the debate about Brexit in the UK where you have this attempt to bring the people back into British democracy by making a decision which doesn't fit with the considered needs of the British state, right? Uh, or of the European Union as an impersonal system. And so mm. because you've not gone all the way in on taking apart this impersonal system, uh, you, you have the, rem you know, the, the remnants of the impersonal system bound by rules which have come about through a direct democratic mandate, and those rules not really fitting with the mechanisms of that system. So sometimes you end up, instead of a balance between the two, you have a gridlocked scenario where your direct democratic reforms or your presidential reforms just get in the way of the thing functioning. And so you yeah. run into functionality problems because you have institutions that are mismatched that don't fit together. Which exacerbates the root problems in the economy. Yeah, uh, and so this is the thing. Yeah. This is the thing that I think people have to be very careful about. A lot of the things that you do to restore legitimacy to a state will also make the state less effective. Mm. And if the state becomes sufficiently ineffective, all of that procedural legitimacy won't matter. No matter how legitimate you make the inputs appear, if the outputs break down, then fundamentally the state can't function and something will have to give. And in France, you see this quite a bit. The Fourth Republic was really an effort to make the inputs appear legitimate and make the state appear representative. But it produced so much dysfunction that it gave rise to the Fifth Republic, this heavily presidential system centered around one particular person, right? And in France, you switch from a system which is trying to feel like it's more direct democratic than it can possibly be to a system which is trying to feel like it's more presidential than it can possibly be. Meanwhile, the reality is that France is stuck in the European in a European framework which heavily limits the autonomy either of its direct uh, 
direct democratic gesturing fourth republic or its monarchic gesturing fifth republic, the rulers in neither of those systems can deviate heavily from what is European orthodoxy without inviting major consequences economically for France and then the possibility of political ruin, right? So you make these different moves to try to shore up the internal legitimacy and the procedural input legitimacy of the state. But if it is incompatible with doing what is necessary to keep the economy humming along and keep the government appearing to be effective, at a certain point, outputs matter. If you fail on outputs over and over, no matter how nice the inputs look or how well you can talk about the inputs, people won't care. And hmm. yeah, this is this is this is why I really wanted to do this episode for an awfully long time. I, I've been wanting to talk about representation, and I, I think that my work will need to go in this direction more in the years to come because we have we have reached a point where I think the concepts of representation that we have are incompatible with the kind of states that we have, the kind of economic systems that we have, right? So what we want out of representation is not something that is compatible with our overall structure. And so what is happening is that we are being given facsimiles of that kind of representation, ersatz, cathartic, aesthetic presentations that are supposed to make us feel like we have that kind of representation, while the mm. system itself goes on operating in the same way it always has. Hmm. And that because of this, the inputs and the outputs are getting more and more estranged from each other. And the system is, is putting more of its legitimation on the perception that you are getting input through cathartic aesthetic reflection and less and less emphasis on whether the actual decisions with which the system makes have anything to do with your interests. So it's promising more and more and delivering less and less. Yes. In one direction, it promises more and more. And in the other direction, it delivers less and less. And it depends to a large degree on people feeling like if they are getting their values reflected at them in this cathartic way, that that will somehow eventually lead to them getting things that they want and need, right? It, it rests on this idea that you can be persuaded that this cathartic stuff will eventually somehow translate to substance. But because there is no real possibility of this happening. It involves ever-shifting goalposts. So every time you have people elected who can't actually deliver the things that you want, they give you these cathartic displays and they tell you, well, I could get you the things that you really need, but only if there were more of me, only if you got more people like me elected. But it's never possible because the cathartic cultural displays are always too divisive, right? So if you get a bunch of people elected who will mirror your uh, social values at you, and those people go, well, if you get enough people elected, we'll also do things economically and materially that you need. Because those social values only are the social values of a particular heavily gerrymandered or, or heavily uh, specialized constituency, all of that cultural posturing will get in the way of electing other people who might be able theoretically to help with that, uh, with, with those economic changes or reforms that you want to make. So what mm. happens is the cultural catharsis, which is the way that these, these representatives hang around, 
is heavily divisive internally for the purposes of actually assembling a large enough number of people to contend with the impersonal structure of the state and the market, right? Mm. And so those those culture wars that we have to give people this sense of, of thick representation over and over again prevent any uh, any accumulation of strength that would be necessary to actually meaningfully change where things are going. And this happens not because there are people who set out and plot and scheme to divide everybody up on the basis of cultural signifiers, but through the incentives of this system, right? Because this system has these heavily specialized districts, heavily small, tiny districts. And the reason it has the small, tiny districts is so the MP or the member of the House of Representatives can really represent one particular place. But this leads to immense cultural variation in what is projected back at citizens, because the individual MP only has to worry about maintaining the support of the constituency. The individual member of the House of Representatives only has to worry about maintaining the support of the constituency. And so because it's all drawn up that way, there is never an incentive to develop the kind of platform which can unite and bring together a large enough number of people to potentially change economic structures. Hmm. And so the kinds of reforms that we're talking about that would be significant and not merely trivial, those reforms require a large enough number of people and a diverse enough, and, and when I say diverse, I mean intellectually value, value diverse, uh, People who are culturally different from each other, really culturally different, not just superficially, people who have genuine value disagreements about a lot of social and cultural questions, right? Hmm. That kind of coalition can't form. And so the only kind of reforms you can get are reforms that are shoved over in, over the objections of large numbers of people, which are superficial enough that they can be shoved in. Because to get something in that would be really substantive would require the kind of, of unity in the demos that is made impossible by these attempts to look representative through this cathartic, thick gesturing. Mm. I've been thinking about this kind of stuff a lot the last few years. So I, <laughs> I, I want to yeah, go in that, in that kind of direction with some of my work. I want to talk more about that because I think that's really the thing that's in the way is that everybody, regardless of where they sit culturally, regardless of what it is you value, how you feel about various social issues, uh, everybody is spending so much of their time caught up in the cathartic gestures of politicians on those issues that it's not really possible for anything that would substantively challenge impersonal structures to, to come into being. All we can get are, are kinds of discursive gestures that make this thing look human by making it look like it cares about our cultural values. But the cost of getting that appearance of looking human is that all of the other stuff that actually divides us from each other and makes us feel small and makes us feel alienated and all of that can't be touched because we can, the only way that you can contend with impersonal structures of this depth and intensity and strength is to have an enormous amount of people an enormous amount of people who are really interested in revising them and who are prioritizing revising them ahead of the things which would otherwise divide them. 
And yet the, the impersonal system is set up to prevent that from ever arising by constantly incentivizing representatives to give these cathartic gestures. The emphasis on representation has become an obstacle to there being any kind of conception of general will. And I think when people read Rousseau, uh, it's it's frustrating in part because we, we could not imagine a society which has enough in common to even speak of something like general will. When we talk about common good, we are constantly being reminded that we have so little in common with other people in our society, that other people in our society are people we should dislike or hate for various superficial reasons. And this makes it impossible for us to come together on anything, anything important. And so all politics becomes is a parade of superficial minoritarian gestures that amount to nothing. And I think that's why a lot of people become disengaged over time. So yeah, this is why I really, I really want to dig into representation because I think a lot of the, of the dirty laundry of our system is being laundered through this concept, mm-hmm. even more mm-hmm. so than with, say, liberty or equality. I think catharsis has some role. I think I, I agree that the problem with representation is that it has become too weighted on, on catharsis, or as Andrew notes, reflectiveness. Uh, I think that politics can have an element of that kind of you know that that emotional unity that people yearn for um without it undermining the material demands that have to be at the center of politics you know healthcare infrastructure and public services all that stuff has to be at the heart and center of of, of, of politics to make it meaningful to make it actually something that changes people's lives rather than you know just something something that passes you by and it's a moment of catharsis and then, then it goes away. But at the same time, it's very hard to get rid of the uh, get rid of the catharsis. And I wonder if one problem is not just the catharsis and the way in which the catharsis swamps everything else, but the separation between, on the one hand, the catharsis and the material demands. And if you could have some kind of... And I think it is an emotional thing, the the... the the kind of material economic needs people have uh, uh, stuff that you know p- people care a great deal about ensuring that their their you know families are well fed and have shelter and healthcare that's something that it, people have an emotional investment in and i think that if if there could be some way of tying catharsis to those material needs rather than separating the catharsis and pulling it in this in this cultural domain, I'm kind of saying two separate things here, aren't I? But uh, I, I think that I'm not really sure what I think about this. But even though catharsis is a problem, it's hard to have representation or legitimation without it at all. It may play some role. I'm not sure what kind of role it plays, but at least there is some role for catharsis, the priority being not allowing the catharsis to get in the way of the material demands, which will actually, you know, well, catharsis kind of papers over the problems by making it seem as though we've overcome them when we, when we haven't, actually changing the system through doing material and institutional change. You know, that, that's the real remedy. Part of the trouble is that so much of our politics is done for people who don't face those acute needs. So much of it occurs for people who have the time to participate in it. And that tends to be people who are professionally employed in it or in fields adjacent to it, uh, or people who have spare time because they 
have the kinds of jobs which permit them to to spend time indulging in political discussions. And because of that, what is cathartic for those people tends to not be material. They they don't have the kind of material situation which would lend it to having the kind of emotional weight which it needs to have for what you're for what you're talking about, I think, to go through in many cases. And yeah. this is part of the the kind of silencing of most of the people in our society. Most of the people in our society are so estranged from politics that we no one even makes political content to be consumed by those parts of society. Those parts of society are not, from a market perspective, the chief consumers of political news or political opinion writing. The, the classes which consume political news and political opinion writing are mainly the the professional class and, and the wealthy and not yeah. ordinary people. And I think that's a big part of why so much of the cathartic language is tied up to the kind, tied up in the kinds of problems which people who already have plenty of money face, rather than the kinds of problems which affect the the wider majority. Yeah. Yeah, I. I anyway. Really brilliant discussion going on. <laughs> yeah, I want to. I want to. Before we wrap up, I want to give Andrew a few minutes to kind of give any thoughts he may have had about this because we kind of went and did me and Edmund for a while. Well, I, I really liked Edmund's um, power, passion, and, and philosophy distinction. I think um, it's definitely possible um, to see it in that light. Of course, the, the important thing that has to be remembered is, is that, yeah, catharsis is um, one way to view the reflection in the scale. The reason I ended up not actually using that term in the dissertation. I've used the term when discussing this with Edmund before, hence why he remembered that I brought it up. And I, I do thank you for that because it completely skipped my mind. But the reason I didn't actually use that term in the final draft was because it was it made more sense to describe the descriptive view from the perspective of those who value that view. Because for the people who value that view, um, the value in that descriptiveness comes from an idea that if you have political authority figures who are like you in like in life experience and views and the emotions that they feel and how they are as a person and so on and so forth, then they are likely to act like you and they they are therefore likely there is therefore likely to be a greater um, equality of political output, which is a phrase that I borrowed from Benjamin's PhD from 2019. Um, of course, the issue with that is, as Ben was saying earlier, although in quite different words, is that representation really doesn't guarantee equality of political output and really tries to guarantee political or, or tries to create an image of political output by really just focusing on equality of political input. But representation means really acting either after the authorization of the representative or acting before being held to account. None of the actual views are centered on representation during its actual activity. It's either paying attention to before representation begins or after it ends. And there's an insufficient attention paid to the actual activity of it. Uh, the other interesting thing that I noticed was when, 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 uh, when Edmund was discussing the direct versus uh, representative democracy dichotomy and and one thing to say about that, I think, is it's it's really underestimated how how large of a role Sartitian plays in ancient direct democracy, in the sense of if we look at it from a modern lens, we think of 
sortition as a randomization mechanism. Um, and that's all we really think about. And when we look at election, we think of it as people consenting and voting for those who they want to be elected because they believe that they will make decisions on their behalf. For the ancients, this is not quite what it was viewed as. If you look at Aristotle's writings when he's talking about the Athenian constitution and the Spartan constitution, he explicitly mentions that there is absolutely nothing democratic about election whatsoever, and there is everything democratic about sortition. And that is because for a lot of the ancients, sortition and direct democracy is about equality, um, is about political equality in the sense of you have a, an equal chance to hold office. Because when, for example, you would go to the assembly or you would put yourself forward for one of the smaller courts or smaller councils, which held actually a lot more of the power, 600 out of 700 political offices um, in Athens were, were elected, were not elected, but chosen by sortition. And very few positions were actually chosen by election. But the reason that was upheld was because it was believed that that was the equal, that was the egalitarian thing to do. Because um, when you put yourself forward for that, you have an equal chance of getting onto that council and having that authority. But at the same time, because there's a, there's all, those offices are always rotating, you as a citizen might experience the effects of your own policies two days, a month, or even a year later. And so it's supposed to create um, a much more fealty type of situation where you're much more aware of your actions when you're in those positions. But um, of course, what then happens is an interesting sleight of hand when, um, when Hobbes introduces the mechanism of authorization, because that authorization ultimately forces him to introduce the idea of a multitude giving consent to the sovereign. And this introduction of giving consent to the sovereign, therefore, then opens the floodgates to the idea of giving consent to political power. So what happens is we then have a sleight of hand from an equality of being able to hold political office to an equality to the right to consent to political power. And people start caring more about their ability to consent to power than their ability to hold office. Because, of course, inherently, election distinguishes, doesn't make it easier for you as a person to hold political office. It makes it easier for mm. the people in society who are more distinctive, more unique, more wealthy, more affluent, um, more awesome, I don't know, use whatever term you like, <laughs> to hold <laughs> political office. Um, of course, those are all um, subjective things and can be measured in different ways. But this sleight of hand is not touched because you could argue, or at least Manon argues this in his book about representation, which was another backdrop which heavily facilitated my work with Runciman in the year before when him and I examined direct democracy and representative democracy. This sleight of hand is not really touched at the time because for those that understand what election can do, in terms of electing those who are distinctive and electing the elite, um, there's no reason to argue against that because the catharsis, right? The catharsis of the people who want to consent to power is being fed sufficiently um, that it does not need to be touched because why would you want to, um, to impose other, other beliefs on those people when you can still have election which prioritizes elitism? And so this sleight of hand that takes place from ancient democracy to modern democracy has a lot to do with the way that political equality is changed from holding office to consenting to power 
and from going to sortition to election and the ways that we then differently see those things as it as it um, changes over time. So that's something that I just wanted to add to that part of the, of the discussion. Um, but yeah, no, very, very interesting overall. Um, and I think Benjamin, in, in your work, you can definitely add this um, to your to your theories and make it very interesting indeed. Yeah, yeah, consent and consensus. Uh, both, both not what Hobbes really had in mind. Consensus coming before Hobbes and consent coming after. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, consensus being very different from from ruling yourself, mm -hmm. right? So, mm. I, I think when we when we, if you want to look at an ancient system that is the closest to the kind of system that we have, the system to look at is is the Roman Empire, not the Republic, but the Empire, because in the Empire you have a population which has to feel good about an emperor in a system which is ostensibly not a monarchy, right? So you have a monarchical system that has to be presented as, as something else. And the ways in which you succeed in presenting this one type of regime as a different type of regime, because you're, you're engaged in, as Edmund, I think, beautifully put it, representing that system, uh, there's a lot of sleight of hand and a lot of trickery that is involved in legitimating that because it can't be legitimated straight up as a monarchy. It, the emperor can't be a Rex. He has to be first citizen, right? And so I've, I've often thought that the ancient society that's most interesting to look at from the point of view of a comparison to, to our modern states is, is the Roman Empire because it has this need to present one thing as another. Yeah, and regardless of how similar the two things at. are, yeah, yeah, regardless of of whether you think the specific institution is like ours or not, this need to present one thing as another results in a very diverse array of legitimation tools and narratives and a lush array of political ideas about how it is that the emperor is acceptable. That if you look at that and you, you read that kind of stuff, it really highlights the kinds of games that get played in our own society. The kinds of games, not to say that it's the same type of regime, but the kinds of games are very similar in having mm -hmm. to persuade people that this one type of regime is in fact a different type. Yeah, and I think that's also why the scales that I derive in the dissertation, a lot of them are a perception of reflectiveness, a perception of expertise, a perception of autonomy or fealty. It's never quite what the actual thing is. It's more what you as a person view the system as and how you think that reflects your values. But that's not always necessarily true. It's more of like a, I don't want to say the word theater because I think that opens up a lot of, um, lot of kind of worms, but that's why it's, it's a lot about creating images. It's a lot about creating perceptions of these different concepts um, and how that's used to establish and maintain power. And you don't have to get everybody to buy in, but just enough for the thing to keep going. Legitimacy doesn't require every person to consent, but it requires enough people who, you know, they don't even have to consent, but they have to accept or put up with. If you can get enough people to put up with, then you can keep going. 
that's all you really need is enough people to put up with. And so internal legitimacy is, I think it's not what does each individual see as much as is, what will enough people put up with? Mm. Or the, the right people, the people who are powerful enough to meaningfully object, what will they put up with? Yeah, it's about building, mm. as, I, as I put it, a coalition of views which will be sufficient to maintain the structure and the group or the person in power in a system. Yeah. And that can be a combination yeah. of several views. Um, it can be a combination of several views which have common characteristics like high expertise or like high reflectiveness, like you previously touched on um, with authoritarian systems. And in the second half of the dissertation, I bring up the um, example of authoritarian states like Russia who have transitioned from um, very much a, a monarchical system to a hybrid system, and, but they've never quite made it to a fully, I guess you could say, Western democracy. They've, as Lewitsky and, and Wei put it, they've become stranded between the two, and they've created this hybrid regime where there is where there are democratic institutions or electoral institutions, for the better way of calling it. Um, but those electoral institutions function differently from Western democratic institutions because the types of views that dominate those systems and which allow people who run those systems and who are empowering those systems to maintain their power are built and supported by a slightly different set of views of representation that prioritize slightly different values to the ones that um, we might predominantly prioritize in the West. Um, and it's and those views hold just enough or just of a, just enough of a sufficient acceptance. It doesn't have to be passionate. It doesn't have to be riotous. It doesn't have to be complete devotion, but just enough acceptance that it allows the regime to also do a few of its own devious methods, but also maintain its power in a way that is sufficient to, as Edmund said, represent it again and again. Yeah, and, and representation is that concept that is the most flexible, that travels to the most con contexts. Liberty and equality, they have their uses, but representation almost every state around the world makes use of in its legitimation narratives in some way, shape, or form. It's a very, very easy concept to bend. It has no fixed form, no fixed shape. And most of the time when people are talking about democracy and what's democratic, they're referring to it without referring to it. Yeah. So yeah. as we're coming up on two hours, I think we should probably leave it here. But thank you so much for coming on, Andrew, not just on this episode, but on the previous two and talking with us about Montesquieu and Siez and the French Revolution and representation and its evolution over time. And you know, I, I really enjoyed supervising you for all those all those years that we were together at Cambridge. It was a really delightful time. And I, I love what you ended up uh, writing up and focusing on. It's a really interesting set of stuff. And I'm glad that we were able to share it with some people. So <laughs> thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Now, this, this has been a great time. And um, once again, I, I, I think a lot of this dissertation was inspired by my conversations with you as well during our years um, at Cambridge together. So I really have a lot of that to thank to you, of course. Um, but also to this podcast, because without it, we would not be able to be able to share this with the world. And I guess just as a final, final challenge to, to listeners, when you go out into the world after listening to this, when you look at your politicians, your leaders, your authority figures in society, 
um, before you decide whether you like them or don't like them, whether you accept them or don't accept them, is take a moment, take a few seconds and think, what kind of power are they, what kind of power are they playing? Are they playing into the autonomy or fealty category? What are they playing into the reflectiveness category? How do they represent themselves on the expertise category? And just think about that. Just remove yourself from the situation and think about it analytically and ponder that. Because that's when it becomes really interesting. And that's when you really start to see through power. You just you start to see behind that curtain. And that might open up some interesting questions down the road. What do they say they're doing for mm. you versus what are they actually doing for you? Mm. What Wonderful mm. stuff. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, hopefully we'll... I, I know I've said this before, but the the past few months have been difficult. My father had prostate cancer and he got progressively sicker and he declined and he, he died, un, unfortunately, in August. So over the past few months, that has hindered the production scandal, uh, schedule of this show. So I, I'm very sincerely hoping that we will be able to make more of these and on a more regular schedule. And I am sorry to listeners who have been waiting for them patiently. I appreciate you guys sticking with us as uh, as I kind of navigate this difficult time in my life. So thank you so much and have a great, great rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. And thanks, Andrew. It's been an honor. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.